This past week, I read an article that was put out by the Cleveland Clinic. Um, it was an article about how to handle depression during the holidays. What caught my attention with this article was the first few lines and what it said there. They wrote this. They said, the holidays are often a mixed bag of emotions. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I identified with that. Uh, the holidays are, are usually a mixed bag of emotions. For some, it's the most wonderful time of the year, filled with family and friends and reasons to celebrate. But for others, it may be a time of deep sorrow, reflection, loneliness, and strife. Now, the article continued on by outlining some ways that people can manage the unique stressors during the holiday season. They pointed out this. They said the holidays, like many other events, can impact people in a lot of different ways. Depending on what's going on in your life right now and in the world around you, the holiday uh, depression can cause a disruption to your relationships, to your mental health, and your ability to manage everything that comes along during the holiday season. And so I want to ask you this morning, what's happening in your life these days? Uh, has it been a busy time for you? Uh, have you been experiencing things in your life that might be causing you to have the, the midwinter blues? Well, they listed out several different reasons uh, for experiencing this uh, you know, holiday depression. And top of their list, and I think we can all identify this with this, is stressful schedules. Amen? Lots of things going on. Excessive obligations. And, and the, you know, the deal is, is sometimes you just want to say, forget it. I'm not going to do anything more. But, but then, you know, you get labeled a Scrooge and those kind of things. But, you know, stressful schedules. Also, there's the additional pressure that we put on ourselves to live up to very high expectations, which, by the way, we put on ourselves as well. But there are other reasons. Some of those reasons are things that we can't control, such as separation from loved ones. It might be distance. You know, for many years of our, our uh, married life, we were 10,000 miles away from home uh, for the holidays. Um, it might be distance. But that distance also might not be geographic. It might be because of dysfunction. There's a lot of dysfunction in, in families, you know. Uh, have you seen those shirts, I bring the fun to dysfunction? Um, you know, there are some people out there that they just like to stir the pot when you all get together. But, you know, there's also separation that's caused by death. And it may be that this is the first Christmas that you've been separated from a loved one. That's hard. It's depressing. It brings difficulty. And you know what? It doesn't end with the first. It continues on and on. Which, bring about, which brings about feelings of loneliness. Another reason that we deal with depression or maybe we're just sad because it's winter time. 
Are you familiar with SAD? Seasonal Affective Disorder? Um, there are some people, um, potentially my eldest, who just don't like it when it gets cold. Um, one of these days she's going to leave us for a beach somewhere in the world. I, I hope maybe it's in the Western Hemisphere, but I'm not counting on that. But, you know, it's a real thing. Dealing with family dynamics. Being anxious because of all the social gatherings that you've got to be a part of and all the holiday events that you, you have to attend. And then just all the holiday trauma that reemerges from all the past holidays that were so bad. And you just remember all that stuff. There are plenty of reasons for us to struggle emotionally this time of year. Needless to say, not everyone is feeling uh, like this is the most wonderful time of the year. Well, not feeling this way just adds more stress to us because there is an expectation that we should be having a holly jolly Christmas because it is the season to be jolly, right? And maybe we just don't feel like being jolly jolly and those pressures don't make it any easier well this month we've been focused on the themes of advent we started out looking at hope and peace and joy and today we'll be looking at this concept of love you know it's difficult for us to understand sometimes the type of love that God has for us the love that he demonstrated to us through the gift of his son. But God's love is a theme that we find throughout scripture. And as we've considered these themes of Advent, what we've done, we focused on the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, we'll be looking at Isaiah uh, again uh, in just a few minutes. But, you know, to think about the fact that he prophesied all these things... 700 years before they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ is amazing. But before we get to Isaiah, I want us to look at another prophet or another of the writings of one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And that is the prophet uh, Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations. Even though the book does not clearly indicate it, that many scholars believe that Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. And so I want us to look here at Lamentations. Lamentations, wow. Lamentations, chapter 3, and see what Jeremiah has to say. We're going to read several of these, uh, these stanzas of this poem that we find here in Lamentations, and it's interesting if you note, uh, each uh, sentence is three verses, and so you've got three verses, and then three verses, and so one through three, four through six, seven through nine, and so forth. We're going to start out reading one through three, and then jump ahead to 22, and then jump ahead again to 31, and we'll look at some of the stuff in between at a later time. So if you have your Bibles and want to read with me or read along on the screen or in the YouVersion uh, interactive notes, Lamentations 3, the prophet Jeremiah says, 
I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Then verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And then in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. Well, this morning I want us to start here in Lamentations and, and look at how this is a prophecy uh, pertaining to God's love. The first thing I want us to notice is that God's love is there, even when it's not visible. God's love is there whether we see it or not. And here at the beginning of Lamentations, Jeremiah was not seeing the love of God. You know, there are many times when it seems like we are, are shrouded in darkness. It's those times where we just have no hope. Well, that's just what Judah and her prophet Jeremiah were experiencing at the time of this writing. You see, this book was written somewhere between 587 and 520 B.C. This was the period that was following the deportation of many Jews to Babylon and before the return of worship under the leadership of Haggai and Zechariah, which started in 520 through 516 B.C., so it's this period of darkness, this period of desperation, of not knowing what was going to happen. Because they had just seen the ten northern tribes, you know, less than a hundred years before, get deported by the Assyrian Empire. And they no longer existed. They were gone. They were scattered throughout the face of the world. They no longer had a national identity and so they were wondering, is this going to happen to us? One commentator pointed out that Jeremiah was confused as he watched God seemingly reverse his past attitudes and actions. He said, instead of walking in the light of God's guidance, he had been forced to stumble in darkness. God's hand of favor had become a fist of adversity. Now, the imagery here that we see in Lamentations 3, verse 2, is important to our understanding of the advent of the promised Messiah. Do you notice what it says there? It says that he brought me into darkness. There was no light without any light at all. But do you remember Isaiah's prophecy that we've talked about this month? About the, the coming of the Messiah or the advent of the Messiah? Specifically, do you remember what Isaiah said about darkness and light? Well, if you look at it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he said, 
You know what? Let me back up. Let me read one as well. He said, but there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought the contempt, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Then in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So this is the prophecy of Isaiah. Well, what does this mean? Well, in Luke chapter 4, we find out exactly what this means. If I can find the correct passage. I've got a lot marked this morning. Luke chapter 4 in verse 13, we see Jesus is starting his ministry. Okay? Uh, let's read verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is where he grew up. In Nazareth of Galilee, right? He returned under the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, his custom, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. You know what? I am reading Luke chapter 4, which is later, and I need to be reading Matthew chapter 4. Please forgive me for that. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to come back to Luke chapter 4. Again, lots of scripture that we're looking at this morning. And this one we're starting in verse 13. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Isaiah talked about Zebulun and Naphtali. And now Jesus is living in Capernaum in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. So it's at this point in time that Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. The problem was, is Jeremiah didn't see that light. Jeremiah was in darkness. And the people who followed Jeremiah, all of the Jewish people that had heard these prophecies from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Malachi, they had been waiting for hundreds of of years for these prophecies to be fulfilled. You see, in Lamentations, back in Lamentations 3, one of the verses we did not read, verse 25 says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him. But that doesn't make the waiting any easier. Well, starting in January, we're going to begin a series that's going to be in the book of Hebrews, focusing on what it means to live by faith. Um, 
you know, how to cultivate a deeper dependency on God. Do you know what Hebrews 11 verses 1 and 2 says? You probably recognize it if I, if I quote it to you. It says that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jeremiah had faith that God would fulfill his promise. Even though he was walking without any light at all, he had faith. Verse 2 of Hebrews 11 says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. So I want to ask you this morning, I've talked about what Jeremiah was walking through, what Jeremiah was dealing with in his life. What are you dealing with? What's going on in your life right now? Are you struggling to see the love of God at work in your life? For whatever reason it may be, circumstances at home, circumstances at work, just a general disbelief in this whole concept of God. What is it that's going on in your life? God's love is there even when we don't see it. God wants us to believe in him. He wants us to trust him, to receive his love, even when it seems to be concealed from us. We know that his love never goes away because we know his word is true. And his word says that the steadfast love of the Lord, what? Never ceases. And that's what we read just a moment ago in Lamentations 3, 22. So let's look at our second point this morning, and that is that God's love is never ending. It's never ending, but you know, the other aspect of this is that it's always revitalizing. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? It's always life-giving. Every day, his mercies are new every morning, is what it says. It's never ending and always revitalizing. Well, earlier I mentioned that this, this uh, lament that is written here in Lamentations 3 is uh, three verse stanzas. So verses one through three is a stanza and so forth. Um, and so the prophet Jeremiah wrote six three verse stanzas about the way in which the his life and the lives of those in Judah were filled with affliction. We read verses one through three. It, as you go on in verses four, all the way down to 21, these six three-verse stanzas, look at some of the things that he mentions about what life is like for them. In verse 4, he says that his flesh and his skin waste away, that his bones are broken. Uh, he's been enveloped with bitterness and tribulation. Verse 6, he's been made to dwell in darkness. Verse 8, he says that his prayers have been shut out. And verse 9, he points out that his paths have been made crooked. Do you remember Proverbs 3, 5? 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and what? He will make your paths straight. Jeremiah says, my paths are all crooked. Verse 10, he goes on and he says, he is a bear lying in wait for me. Hmm. Verse 12, he bent his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. And then he, he takes that one step further. He's not shooting at my chest. It says, he drove his arrows into my kidneys. Have you ever had kidney stones? Brother John, can I get an amen about the pain of a, of a kidney stone? Yeah. Verse 13, or 15, he says, he's filled me with bitterness. Are you catching the picture here of what's going on in the life of those living in Judah? He said, I, he's made my teeth grind on gravel in verse 16. 18, my endurance has perished. So has my hope. I'm done, he says. I give up. But then in verse 21, notice what he says. But this I call to mind. I remember this. And because I remember this, he said, I have hope what did he remember he remembered that the steadfast love of the lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness you see jeremiah could have hope because of the steadfast love of the lord Jeremiah could also have hope because of the mercies of God. Mercies that are new every morning. Have you ever stopped to consider what it means when it says that the Lord's mercies are, are new every morning? Have you ever thought about that? Well, first of all, what is mercy? Almost. That's grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's not getting what we deserve. You see, mercy is when you do not receive the punishment that you deserve, but instead you receive compassion and you receive forgiveness. That's what mercy is. Now let me ask this. Is there anyone in your life, a friend, a co-worker, a family member, whatever, is there anyone in your life who offers you a clean slate every single morning and offers mercy to you no matter what you did the day before? There's not. You see, we approach our relationships with people based on preconceived ideas or conceived ideas that we have gotten from experience with that person. It's the way it is. Why? Because we're sinners. Well, I think we've covered that by this point. 
We're sinful people. And so when you approach me and you start talking to me, everything I know about you and every interaction that I've had with you over however many years, those things are coming to my mind as I'm receiving whatever you're communicating to me. Some of you may or may not, I didn't ask permission to share this. I hope it's okay, Rick. Um, some of you may or may not realize this, but um, when I was a teenager, I hung out with the youth group here at Temple. That's why Shannon and I have been friends for a few years now. Yeah, we won't talk about how many. But Rick and actually Brother Eddie and Holly and Susan, they were the youth sponsors. Is that what they called you back then? Youth sponsors, something like that? Youth directors? And so they were in charge of the youth group that I would come and join. Can I tell you that when Rick found out I was now the pastor of this church, he said that he had to listen to, I believe he said, about a hundred of my sermons before he decided he was going to come and, and check things out here. Um, why? Why? Because he remembered me at 17. Yeah. It still remembers. You don't have to share everything you know. That's who we are. But how does God interact with us? His mercies are new every morning. I don't know about you, but I needed new mercies this morning. This, in verses 22 and the verses following, is a proclamation of hope in God by Jeremiah. It is a hope in God and in a God who has proven himself faithful in the past. That's why he says, great is your faithfulness. Now, the last stanza that we read just a few minutes ago, verses 31 through 33, this is a prophecy of what God would one day do to demonstrate his steadfast love for his people. And so let's look at God's love and how God's love was a promise of compassion and mercy. The difficulties that Jeremiah and the people of Judah were facing at the time of this writing were horrendous. I mentioned some of it a moment ago, but let me try to characterize it a little more for you now. You see, their nation had been overrun by a global superpower, the Babylonian Empire. And all of the best and the brightest had been taken hostage out of their country. They had been treated as cargo and taken to Babylon and enslaved by the Babylonians. Not to mention, in the process, they destroyed their capital city of Jerusalem. That's the situation that Jeremiah is facing here. And now the prophet is encouraging the Hebrews that this affliction should be endured with hope. Hope in God's salvation. 
And he reminds them that this affliction is only temporary. And that it is being tempered with God's love. And being tempered with God's compassion. Now frankly folks, as you look at the the historical context of what's going on, there was no hope. There was no love. There was no compassion that Jeremiah could see. But he said, this will not last forever. Can I say, I don't know what you're dealing with today, but it will not last forever. It won't. If there's anything that I have learned in my 50, almost 51 years of life, is that, man, it goes by fast. You know, just like Rick said, oh, I still remember you at 17. Man, it feels like that was yesterday, you know? Now, when I was 17, I thought I'd never, you know, never get to where I'd be an adult and, you know, do all those things. But whatever God has for us in this life, it's short. It's temporary. And you know what? Whatever pain you might be enduring, whatever difficulty that you might be experiencing, can I tell you today that God always has a purpose in the pain. He always has a purpose in the pain. And you know, some of the pain that some of you have experienced, I can't tell you what the purpose was. But I know he has a purpose. One pastor explained it this way. God expects you to use your pain to help others. Whatever mistake, failure, trouble, trial, or bad decision that you've experienced, God says, I'll use it for good in your life. And I expect you to use it to help others. Folks, none of us are exempt from bad decisions or difficult circumstances or failures in our life. The question is not whether you've experienced these things. The question is whether or not you will allow God to be glorified as a result of your experiences. If it wasn't for the pain, his grace and his mercy and his compassion would not be so sweet. If it wasn't for the pain, the people of Judah would not have been waiting, anticipating the advent of the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. Well, let's go back to the writings of the prophet Isaiah for just a moment. Not back to chapter 7, 8, and 9, but let's look at Isaiah chapter 61. We want to take a moment to see how God's love is fulfilled in the person of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, we look at verses 1 and 2. And the Bible says, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. We'll stop there. Now this this passage here in Isaiah 61 is a beautiful example of an important hermeneutical principle. Now you remember this this, uh, word, hermeneutics, is the, the art and the science of understanding and applying the Bible. So it's the principles by which we have to try to uh, utilize those precepts, those principles to understand the Bible clearly. And this is a beautiful picture of one of those uh, principles. You see, when you're reading prophecy, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, you know, and then you get into the 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those portions of the book, the Bible, when you're reading those, there's some difficulty there because you don't know if the prophet is making a statement about the current situation or if the prophet is making a prediction about something that has already now been fulfilled, or if the prophet is making a prediction that is still yet to be fulfilled. Understanding prophecy is a little bit more difficult. So as you look at Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2, the question arises, is which type of prophecy is this? Is this a statement about the situation? Is it a fulfilled prediction or is it a yet unfulfilled prediction? Well, it'd be difficult to say for sure just looking at the text. But when looking at the greatest context, because remember, you must interpret a text within its context. Well, what's the greatest context of a text? It's the whole Bible, right? We have to understand Scripture within Scripture. When you look at that, we find that Jesus addressed this issue in Luke chapter 4. The one that I tried to read earlier when I was supposed to be reading Matthew chapter 4. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment. Which brings us back to this very important hermeneutical principle. And this is, by the way, one that I have never shared with you guys before in a sermon. This principle. I've shared quite a few, but this one is different. The principle is this. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Or as Milton Terry observed, he said, God's written word taken as a whole and allowed to speak for itself, will be found to be its own best interpreter. So with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 4 and read beginning in verse 16 to see this companion passage in the gospel of Luke. 
I read part of this earlier. It says that he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what do we see here in Luke 4? We see that God's love is fulfilled in the Messiah, in the Christ. His love is fulfilled in the Messiah. Now, now that we understand the correlation between these two passages, it's always important to compare the original with the context. Just to make sure of you know, how they correlate with one another. I'm wondering, did you notice what is different between the two? The Isaiah 61 passage and the Luke Four passage. Did you see it? What's, what's different about what Isaiah said and what Jesus said? Well, the interesting thing is, is that Jesus stopped in the middle of a sentence. And you know, I'm thankful for that because I've always been taught that when you're preaching God's word, you preach the whole concept or the the pericope is what they call it the the whole topic of the text you don't stop in the middle but jesus did so that that's cool um what does that mean well by stopping in the middle by stopping with the the phrase to proclaim the year of the lord's favor by not mentioning the the rest of that which says and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. By stopping in the middle there, what Jesus has done is he said that his work that he has come to do is going to be divided between the first advent and the second advent. You see, the first advent of Christ was when he came as a babe in a manger, lived his life, taught people all about what it means to love God and then demonstrated that love by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. He brought good news, it said. He, he comforted the brokenhearted. He set us free from being enslaved to sin. That was what was to happen in the first advent. But by not saying the last part was fulfilled in his coming. What he was saying is that the second advent was when he would do those other things, such as bring judgment on the believer and uh, experience the vengeance of God on the day of wrath. Now, without commentary provided by Luke's gospel, we might have never properly understood this passage to refer to prophecies that both have been fulfilled as well as prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. So what I see here are a few principles. 
Am I dead? Thank you. I'll just do this. It's not because I've preached too long. Apparently, I didn't get a new battery today. So we'll keep going. So there are a couple of principles that I see here that are important. Number one, and we've heard this before, you must interpret a text within its context. Number two, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. But the third principle I want us to realize, and this is kind of a, a rebuke against what I've just done, but I think it's important. Don't get so consumed in the minutia that you cannot see the forest for the trees. Because, yes, we can get all excited about, oh, this is referring to the first advent, and this is referring to the second advent. But what is he saying? Why did he come? He came to give good news. He came to heal the brokenhearted. He came to set us free from sin. That's why he came. Jesus was the demonstration of God's love to the world. Let's finish this morning in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. The last thing that I think is important for us to consider about the love of God this morning is that God's love is demonstrated by his son. God's love is demonstrated by his son. God sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And I just realized I read the wrong verse again. That's twice. You know what? I'm going to uh, put this off on the stressors of the holiday and being overly obligated and a lack of sleep. Is that all right? Amen. Let's read the right verse. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. The thing about 1 John is it says the same thing over and over again so many times. The other could have worked. But let's look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What in the world does that mean? What is this idea of propitiation? Well, let me tell you something. Propitiation is the central theme of the entire Bible. And if you don't know what it means, listen up, because this is important. You see, propitiation is an, another word that means the same thing as the word atonement. And the meaning behind these words is that God has provided a way for humankind to come back into a harmonious relationship with him. From the first stories all the way back in Genesis to the last visions of Revelation, God is seeking to reconcile his people to himself. 
That's what propitiation is. That's what the atonement is. It is Jesus' blood covering our sins. The Apostle Paul described this in Romans chapter 5. It's beautiful. In verse 8, he said, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on in verse 9 and says that we've been justified or we've been declared righteous or been determined to be just as if we had never sinned. We were justified by his blood and we were saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10, he goes on, he says that we've been reconciled to God. And so we have new life because we've been saved by his life. And we can rejoice in God. Why? Because we've received reconciliation. From the beginning of time, ever since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, Reconciliation was what was needed. The blood of Christ covered our sin and its shame and gave us the opportunity to be reconciled with God. How can I do that? Well, Paul, again, in Romans 10, makes it very clear. He said, if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, today is the day. A babe in a manger was just the beginning. He became a man and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. To become our propitiation. But a man dying on the cross was not the end either. For three days later, he arose from the dead. Defeating sin. Defeating death. And offering us eternal life with him. That is the real story of Christmas. The greatest gift that we could ever receive is the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, would you please receive that gift today? Father, we thank you for our time in, this, in your word this morning. I thank you that you chose to use men hundreds of years before the birth of your son to predict those things that they would happen and Lord, we are thankful that you are sovereign over all. And so, Father, now as uh, the simple message, this good news that Jesus came to proclaim, since this has now been proclaimed, I just pray, Father, that people here would trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name. Amen.